Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In this hour, after mass atrocities and crimes against humanity, how can societies reconcile? How is justice performed? And how should we recognize these crimes? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. This week, the U.S. House of Representatives Judiciary Committee voted to advance a bill on slavery reparations. This is the first time such a bill has advanced beyond the committee stage. This indicates an increased desire for issues of recognition and reconciliation. April is Genocide Awareness Month. And in honor of this month, and in light of what appears to be a new push internationally to address and redress mass atrocities, we will discuss different options available to societies in promoting recognition, justice, and reconciliation. Our panel today is Elazar Barkan, Professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University and Director of Columbia's Institute for the Study of Human Rights. He's the Founder Director of the Institute for Historical Justice and Reconciliation at The Hague and the author of The Guilt of Nations, Restitution and Negotiating Historical Injustices and co-author of Taking Wrongs Seriously, Apologies and Reconciliation. Mark Drumble, who is professor at Washington Lee University School of Law and director of the university's Transnational Law Institute. He is the author of Reimagining Child Soldiers in International Law and Policy and Atrocity, Punishment and International Law. And Jeremy Sarkin, distinguished visiting professor of law and member of CETUS at Nova University Law School in Lisbon, Portugal. He is the author of The Global Impact and Legacy of Truth Commissions and Reparations for Colonial Genocides. Professor Barkin, first question I'd like to ask is to you. In Guilt of Nations, you identify motivations for why states and state actors would be interested, willing to acknowledge their carrying out of atrocities. What are some of those motivations? So thank you for having me. So I will start actually by differentiating reparation and restitution in post-World War II than previously. After World War I, reparation were imposed on the losing powers and consequently, they were thought to have argumented and incite the rise of Nazism. After World War II, the Allies did not punish Germany as such and increased through the Marshall Plan aid to the defeated in order to build a peace, a strong peace out of the devastated Europe. So that's the first time in human history that I know of the, the losing powers were beneficiaries. Secondly, Adenauer, the chancellor of Germany at the time, after West Germany got its independence, thought that for Germany to come into the nation, legitimate nation, it had to come to terms with the Jewish victims. And in 1952, Germany embraced as a state a plan of reparation for Israel and for refugees and victims of the Holocaust. Since then, there has been a growth of human rights appreciation in international politics. 
those who study human rights at the level, a lot of critiques, and I don't want to get into the weeds of the value of human rights, but it has become the dominating filter to justify policies. And as human rights became important, each, each one of them powers embrace it. That was very much in descended communities from Aborigines and indigenous peoples. After the Cold War, same thing in Eastern Europe, in the United States, it has languished for decades in Congress. And now, with racial justice flourishing, demands of racial justice is flourishing in recognition of the abuse and atrocities against Blacks in the US, there is greater support for reparation discourse. So to answer the question simply, perpetrators or descendants of perpetrators who would like to look back and see their justice, their community as just and ethical, push towards redress as a format of reparation for previous atrocities committed by the community. Now, Professor Sarkin, I know that one of these motivations, one of the more popular institutions driven by this motivation of acknowledgement are truth commissions. The idea of there at least being a period where victims and perpetrators both have an opportunity to at least create some sort of official story about what had happened. Are truth commissions typically seen as as one of the most effective tools at acknowledgement and recognition? I just wrote a book about this particular issue, which deals with the legacy and impact of truth commissions around the world. And basically, you need to understand the perspectives which see in the global north, there's this idea that truth commissions are the second best option. When the global south, there's a perspective which says that truth commissions can play an important role together with justice. So people in the global north argue really that justice is the pivotal issue which societies ought to address. We people in the global south say, but we need to understand that there's a broad panoply of different options. And truth commissions and truth seeking is just one of a number, which include justice, truth, guarantees of non-repetition, issues of reparation, and those particular issues. So we need to have a broad sense of what the options are. So um, in many societies, they don't have the ability to really prosecute thousands of people. We've only really seen you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of prosecutions in really one country and that's Rwanda. And that was really driven through a political process rather than through a process which was really designed to really deal with perpetrators because the perpetrators were seen not as political uh, actors, but in terms of the crimes that were perpetrated. But justice alone is a problem. We should be seeing other things that are happening. So the work I'm doing at the moment, which is focused on Syria, argues we're looking at Syria in terms of accountability models. But what is the benefit for victims? Victims don't get truth. Victims don't get reparations. Victims don't even get guarantees of non-repetition. So we need to ought to see the issues about what can be done in relation to issues during conflict, but also post-conflict in a much wider sense. 
And Mark Drumble, I know um, you've written quite a bit on legal mechanisms. Jeremy Sarkin referenced that as, as justice. How much of these legal mechanisms do address the needs of victims? Are there bigger, broader issues that tend to be at play when trials tend to be on the agenda? I really appreciate the invitation to join this conversation. So one of the things that I've noticed already in the conversation is that terminology matters and phrases like justice, accountability, ending impunity, this kind of language is a very attractive aspirational goal. And then there are these second questions that I think are pivotally important, which is how to achieve them. And I think one very important starting point is to recognize that there are many different modalities or mechanisms to achieve these aspirations of, of justice, accountability, rendering victims whole. So we've heard about criminal trials. We've heard from Jeremy about truth commissions. We've heard from Elazar about the need for reparations, for example. But I think a crucially important point is that these don't necessarily operate in unison. There may be tensions between them. The goals of an effective truth commission may be at cross purposes with the goal of an effective trial. A truth commission is rooted in a perpetrator opening up, confessing, divulging, and sharing. Trials inspire the exact opposite behavior in general in accused persons. They are incented to run the risk and see what happens at trial and their responsibility has to be proven. And guilty pleas are still quite rare in the international criminal process. Your question specifically about victims has to be placed within this broader frame because different institutions and modalities that are legal in nature treat victims differently. There's a long-standing empirical documentation about how victims in a criminal process often become alienated, disappointed, at times feel used, and at times have wishes that aren't brought to the forefront. Now, truth commissions aim to improve upon that through a pursuit not necessarily of the microscopic truth of the guilt or innocence of the perpetrator, but about these much more broader expressive truths about what happened. Yet there is also evidence that truth commissions themselves don't necessarily fully satisfy victim needs. And reparations also present the same problem. Who is a victim for purposes of receiving reparations? How are reparations quantified? The International Criminal Court has a reparations process that's set up in a trust fund to disperse. Yet often the amounts are very low and the process of qualifying for a victim can become deeply legalistic and creates insiders and outsiders. So just to wrap up uh, in regards to this initial question, I think legalism in whatever form it operates, has both advantages and disadvantages. Seeing these institutions in a messianic or, or salvation sense, I think places far too much of a burden upon them. And also my final point on this, focusing only on legal remedies to the pursuits of justice, I think neglects that in many people's minds, things that have nothing to do with law, 
or economics per se or political science matter hugely. Uh, public commemorations, pedagogy, uh, celebrations, local ceremonies that may be deeply customary in nature, all of these matter as well. And I think it's important to include them. Professor Barkan, you had a response. What I've learned over the last two decades plus is not widely organized. Is the redress whereby whatever name it comes, it process not a place. You don't get to justice. You don't get to reparation. You may be encountering them. They may be part of the policy, but altogether, it's impossible to do justice to the level of atrocities and genocide that we are trying to do. So even if there is payment to the tune of $100 billion, this is relatively small compared to the losses and compared to the atrocities and the trauma and the suffering that people endure. And if I can have a minute, I will explain what I see, how do people get to a happy medium, not happy, but medium. The perpetrators are invariably richer and more powerful than the descendants of the victim, who are poorer and don't have political leverage. So as long as the symbolism is meaningful for the defeat, for the victims and not meaningful for the perpetrators, that's the gray area where the mediation of readers can come together. So if you compare the 100 billion that Germany paid for victims of the Holocaust in World War II, you can say 100 billion is not a small change. But if you compare it to the GNP of, of Germany, it's a small version, small component of a GNP over 70 plus years. So I think that the main thing that we need to do is to have redress as a conversation that has all the aspects that Mark and Jeremy mentioned, and that contribute to the process and public healing. You're listening to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. We're discussing policy options following mass atrocities with Elizabeth Barkhan of Columbia University, Mark Drumble of Washington and Lee University, and Jeremy Sarkin of Nova University in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, Professor Sarkin, you had a response uh, as well. Absolutely. Um, I just want to address the question of law versus practice, because in many ways, the law has come somewhat of a long way over the last 30 years as far as accountability is concerned. So just briefly, you know, um, accountability at the international stage has come a long way with the uh, international tribunals for Rwanda and Yugoslavia, the hybrid tribunals in places like Cambodia, uh, East Timor, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, and then the International Criminal Court. And that was really to say to states, if you don't do these things, we will. But there's still tremendous problems. And so, for example, as Mark mentioned, the International Criminal Court pays out very little reparations for a number of reasons. So in some ways, the law relating to justice at the international stage has come a long way. But the practice of truth commissions at the international level, the issue of reparations at the international level, the issues of guarantees of non-repetition at the international level, which are meant to really push states to take on those responsibilities, have not really kept up. 
So we've seen great disproportionalities. So as Elazar mentioned, Germany has paid out 100 billion for the Holocaust, but paid out nothing for colonial uh, atrocities. None uh, in many other places. There have been examples uh, in Latin American countries where some people have got reparations. Argentina paid out tens of thousands. United States paid out to Japanese Americans $20,000. But South African victims of apartheid got almost nothing and very few of them got. So we've really seen the disproportionality of remedies and availability of these issues because the international system hasn't forced states to do a lot more. It's really different in one part of the world and that's the, the Latin American situation where we've seen the inter-American court order states to do a whole range of mechanisms. So really what I'm trying to paint a picture is law and practice have not really gone on similar tracks. And in different parts of the world, we've seen different things being done by states. And it's often about to what extent has the past become somewhat distant? Is there a new government in power? Have they dismissed the old regime? Those are critical questions in determining what is done, how it's done, and how those issues are taken up. And Mark Trumbull, I think this has raised this issue, this sort of the different pressures coming from below or, or, or above, kind of the international versus local pressures, or even put more bluntly, what international needs are with respect to acknowledgments and recognition, reparations, justice, versus what's local groups, what local you know, constituencies, including victims, might need. Can you talk a little bit about that tension and, and how that tends to play out when there's international actors demanding one thing, but maybe local actors that want something else? Yeah, so I mean, I think the riddle here is uh, within the frame of victims. So take the simple expression, crimes against humanity, which is one of the core international crimes. You know, that appellation in and of itself suggests that humanity is the victim. That means all of humanity. That means I'm a victim of the genocide against the Tutsi. I, I, I'm, I'm a victim of crimes against humanity committed uh, in Syria, in, in the Balkans, because last I checked, indeed, as with everyone else here, we're all members of humanity. And that energy, however uh, philosophically compelling and part of a cosmopolitan ethos, often tends to override the very specific needs of individuals who are also victims of that crime against humanity and who are part of humanity, but who themselves, th their own bodies, not just their spirits, but their own bodies and their family members, for example, have been hurt, physically killed, tortured, uh, subject to uh, sexual violence. And that clearly gives rise to a stakeholder claim uh, who among the victims of a crime against humanity should have a larger say than others. And I think riffing off of what both of the other speakers have already alluded to, that has to be placed within the spectrum of power politics, global north, global south, uh, New York, Geneva, The Hague, these lofty citadels of international law and justice are often physically and demographically far removed from places whose violence is become judicialized by that very same system that in and of itself, as Jeremy pointed out, may be loath to recognize the own historicity of, of colonial abuse and involvement. Uh, so I think there's a lot going on there 
in terms of the international local tension. Let me add two or three other things quickly on this that I think are salient. Uh, what happens when local communities want things that internationalists don't fancy? What if local folks want remedies that international law doesn't like? Vengeance, the amnesty and forgetting. These things are anathema to international criminal law. Law is supposed to channel outrage, but never be vengeful and never forget. What if uh, victims don't want reconciliation? What if they don't want uh, restitution? What if they just want to move on and never see, speak, hear, or think about the perpetrator at all? I've worked with victims who have come to the conclusion that the perpetrator took everything from them except for one thing. And that's the amount of time they have left on this planet because that perpetrator left them alive. So some victims are like, well, I don't want to waste the rest of my time on something that happened in the past that simply gives the perpetrator more power over me by taking more from me because all I had left was time. So what do you say in that kind of an instance? And this is very important discursively, how to speak, not at or over, but also how to listen to local perspectives when they may conflict with transnational wisdom. Second point that I think is important, and I'll just leave it to two because I've gone on for a bit. I could add more, but I won't. Uh, what is a harm? So this to me is also very interesting. Our panel here focuses on harms of the past that live on in the hearts of today and in socioeconomic realities of today and redress for those. And largely the harms that we talk about, the harms that are grasped as such by international institutions are what lawyers would call mens rea crimes, intent crimes motivated by hate, motivated by some premeditation. And sure, that level of intense hatred has resulted in the deaths of tens, hundreds of millions of people, and there needs to be justice for that. But what about other harms that I really think are gonna be on the minds of future generations? And I'm thinking of two in particular, climate change, and the pandemic and other public health catastrophes. These are atrocities. COVID is an atrocity, it's killed enormous numbers of people, but it's not spread intentionally. Actions towards climate change are not intentional acts. A very small percentage of public health and environmental harms are made intentionally, cruelly, deliberately by people, malevolently. Most are thoughtless, careless, out of desperation, just living a daily life. How do we redress those in an existing framework where carelessness, desperation, and thoughtlessness are not crimes? And to me, that is a question of the ages for the future. How do we deliver justice in public health and the environment the International Criminal Court's not the place for that. Oh, yes, Jeremy Sarkin, you have a response. Yeah, I'm not sure if I want to respond, but I also want to take the trajectory um, of the conversation to pick up on one of Mark's point, which is about people's time on the earth and what can be done in relation to the suffering that they have endured. And the critical question for me is, while we focus on remedies, why aren't we also focusing 
on protection and stopping these abuses. Because, you know, the critical issue is in the 20th century, 200 million people were killed as a result of international crimes. Every year, millions of people around the world are killed in a range of places. And at the moment, we can talk about, you know, lots of places where civil wars uh, rage and nothing is done about those places. In the 1990s, the international community came up with the responsibility to protect in the uh, wake of uh, Rwanda and Srebrenica. But that's really failed, uh, particularly as a result of Libya in 2011. Nobody wants to really push the button and send uh, peacekeepers into Libya today or Syria or Yemen or Tigray uh, in Ethiopia or a range of other places. So we should be asking the question, what is really the basis of international law and the role of the United Nations, particularly the real problems that exist in the Security Council, to really take up the challenges? Because victims don't want remedies. They really would prefer that they, the violence which is being perpetrated upon them is brought to an end. So we need to consider that as a critical issue as well. So while the UN talks about prevention, there's more than prevention, it's about protection. And that's what I'm particularly interested in at the moment, particularly in relation to Syria. Why for the last 10 years have 500,000 people been killed? Why have more than 150,000, maybe 200,000 people been arbitrarily detained or enforceably disappeared? And the world has done nothing in those regards. And we can talk about this in relation to China or Russia or, you know, um, the other 50 or 70 countries that are seen to be rogue or pariah states that are regularly carrying out mass atrocities against their citizens, and there's no way to deal with these particular issues. So we need what uh, some people call a Groschen moment, where we really turn many of these issues on their head and try and find ways to deal with these issues to really stop these atrocities, rather than focus on judicial remedies and those things, which are useful, but in many ways come after the effect. Why aren't we addressing them while they're in an uh, ongoing situation or while the human rights crisis endures? And uh, Elizabeth Khan, you had a response to this as well. A couple of points. First of all, while I agree that Mark and Jeremy pointed to critical issues, obviously, I think that when I talk about process, there is plurality in the world in things that people need to address. Redress is not uh, comprehensive, it's not appropriate to everyone, but it is appropriate in certain circumstances. And it is an important component of public life. So that's why I talk about process and not about a place. It's not that one category or one approach is unified to the world at large. What Mark and Jeremy pointed out to are extremely important. They are probably more important than what redress is. But redress nonetheless remains significant and should be attended to. The second thing is justice. Justice is very limited. It's very symbolic. When we talk about crisis, of whether it's tens of thousands or millions of people that are victims, most of them never see justice, not even promote proximity of justice. So that brings me to what I've been working on, which is historical dialogue. 
ו-reconciliation in conflict are resolved by focusing on historical dialogue. This history is not necessarily for active in terms of, in terms of redress or reconciliation, but this is very critical to eliminate root causes of conflict. In Germany has shown that more than anyone else through institution, through commission, of how to resolve the conflict within Europe, which Germany was involved with everyone. And we can talk about it more, but I think that just for now, it's important to respect that when you talk about root causes of conflict, historical identity is very critical. It's not useful to just look into the economic and development issues. It has to be also about identity and acknowledgement and the list is long and I won't, won't repeat it right now. When we come back, the clash between international interests and local needs in the acknowledgement and punishment of atrocities. How can we reconcile these? Stay with us. You are listening to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. How can societies reconcile after mass atrocities or crimes against humanity? And what of the clash between international interests and local needs when dealing with the punishment and acknowledgement of atrocities? Doug Becker explores. Mark Rumble, one thing that constantly comes to mind when thinking about, you know, this tension we've been discussing about say justice versus security or justice versus you know improving lives is the famous phrase that often gets misquoted in a very instructive way and that's let justice be done though the heavens may fall it frequently gets reported as let justice be done or the heavens may fall as though justice ne- is necessary for some form of resolution but instead the phrase is really highlights the tension between justice and some sort of resolution. My question is, you know, how accurate is that? And when considering questions of justice, should we be guided by what's the best way to bring about peace and reconciliation to the community? And what role does justice play in that reconciliation? Is it fair to say there's a tension between the two? Yeah, I mean, I think one could be very glib about it and say that security and criminal process for human rights violations are absolutely always in harmony or mellifluous, but that's not true. Actually, tensions do often arise, and there's there's many examples on the ground. So if you're an international humanitarian worker, and you've got medicines, and there's a warlord, and that warlord has control over territory, and that warlord is a crime committer, what do you do? Do you negotiate with the warlord so that you can enter the territory under his control so as to distribute medicines to some of the population so that that population doesn't die? Do you shake the hands of the devil? And you know, at the end of the day, if you do negotiate with the warlord, if you're a humanitarian worker, as opposed to a human rights purist, if you're a humanitarian worker, and you shake the hand of the devil and 
you get into that territory and you distribute medicines. And then when you're there, you see visual evidence of crimes that may have been committed. This comes up a lot in the child soldier context. So you're inside that territory and you see lots of kids who look like they're 14 and they're got uniforms on and they're soldiering, which is an international crime, the recruitment conscription or enlistment of children under the age of 14. In some places it's 18, but the customary crime is at, is at 15, excuse me. So what do you do then if you're the humanitarian worker do you then, after the fact, report what you saw, and then one day that warlord is prosecuted for the crime, and you testify as that humanitarian? At the end of the day, the incentive then is created for no future warlords ever to let you on to your, his particular territory so as to distribute medicines, because when you're there, you're not just a medicine distributor, you're actually an information gatherer. And, you know, these are these really difficult moments. Like we're scholars in a circle, but at the end of the day, people make snap decisions on the ground in the moment. And there's not just a fog of war, there's a fog of justice. And deontologically, you can thunder in the heavens fall that person X has to be prosecuted. But along the way, there may be harms. And I find there's a tendency in uh, international justice activists and advocates to glibly say there's no tension between peace and justice, but there are. And I think it's just important to be honest about that, about those ethical conundra. And also to realize that every different humanitarian worker might make a different choice about what to do in terms of whether to cozy up to an abuser so as in a sense to prevent a greater evil of starvation or, or, or mass death through public health issues. And I think we just need to own those and we can talk theory and that's great. And we can talk practice. I think Jeremy's absolutely right to focus on that. But I also think we need to talk snap decisions moralities in the moment and either offer some instruction on that or let it go and maybe be less controlling through best practices about how people in humanitarian positions always are supposed to act. And that kind of raises the issue, Jeremy, that, that you've been addressing, the power components with respect to, to these different options. Frequently we think of truth commissions as as much justice as we can get. If you can't get trials, then a truth commission, in particular when thinking about the South African Truth Commission, the need to, to offer reconciliation, to offer amnesty in order to get to the truth. In practice, is that really the function of truth commissions is we can't get trials, so we'll have to settle for a truth commission? Well, I think in some ways there's a misconception that truth commissions operate in the absence of trials. And in fact, the best models say that truth commissions operate alongside trials. And we've seen many positive examples. It's a question about how it's done. It's a question of sequencing. It's a question about, for example, how you use amnesties as carrots to induce people who would be otherwise prosecuted to come forward and provide truth. 
we need to realize that generally speaking around the world where atrocities happen, very few people are prosecuted. Handfuls of people. The other people are getting de facto amnesties. The question we should be asking is, why are we giving de facto amnesties to many? Why aren't we using amnesties as carrots to induce people to really provide truth in exchange for non-prosecutions? So our vision about what truth commissions can do in enhancing justice needs to be much more broader than we presently think. We've seen truth commissions as being opposed to justice. And I think truth commissions have a valuable role to play in the justice context as well. So therefore, some of the work I've been doing over the last couple of years has been to argue, let's use amnesty in a vital way to promote justice rather than amnesty as a counter to justice. So our vision about what truth commissions do, how they do it, needs to be much broader. Unfortunately, we've seen truth commissions using amnesty in problematic ways. Now, it's not because the truth commissions did it, but the state mandated truth commissions to provide amnesty, but only by recommending amnesty. So we've seen in Kenya and Korea and Grenada a number of places where the amnesty model has not worked very well. Even the model that most people look to in South Africa was not that positive because the two systems, the National Prosecuting Authority and the Truth Commission did not work seamlessly. So we need to have both a better theoretical understanding of how we understand what justice can be done through a Truth Commission, but also pragmatism in the way it works in practice to ensure that people don't benefit from an amnesty practically because nobody is prosecuted. So we really undermine the whole notion of justice by saying that truth commissions are to blame, where it's really the broader model, which is particularly important. I just want Jeremy to ask you if you really think that the amnesty worked in South Africa. It was supposed to be widespread. There were very few people who applied for amnesty. And the truth commission turned out to be the voice of the victims. I don't know of any case where amnesty was successful on so, massive scale. So just briefly, 7,000 people applied for amnesty in South Africa and about 1,500 people were granted amnesty. But the book that I wrote is called Carrots and Sticks, which is basically what I believe is the critical issue. You will never get people to apply for amnesty unless they believe they need an amnesty. And that's the failure of the South African system. It failed to drive people to need amnesty and therefore to apply. So many people took their chance and said, we don't think the state is capable. We don't think the state is, has the will and therefore we won't apply for amnesty. So a lot of people didn't do so. Nobody needs amnesty if they don't believe that there's a real intent to prosecute people. So we see in some places, East Timor, we see a positive result where more than, I think it was 1,300 people applied for amnesty, which was the majority of perpetrators who were still in East Timor and had not fled to Indonesia because they were certain they would be prosecuted. The same is true in a number of other places. So the sense that you will be prosecuted 
drives people to amnesty. Now, I'm not arguing amnesty because I believe amnesties are useful, but I think amnesties are useful too, at least to punish people through them acknowledging their crimes, them being sanctioned by the community, rather than them continue to walk the streets and people know that they've committed the offense, but everybody knows that they've got off because there've been no prosecutions of them. So my point is that amnesty should be a tool which is used in certain circumstances, not always, and certainly not for crimes against humanity and genocide and the range of other serious offenses. You're listening to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. We're discussing justice, amnesty, restitution, and other issues with Elazar Barkan, Jeremy Sarkin, and Mark Drumble. Elazar Barkan, you've raised these issues about historical identities, historical dialogue, something I'm particularly interested in with respect to questions of, of identity and memory and what Brent Steele calls ontological security concerns, the willingness of, of certain actors to use their force to try to protect their identity. One of the really interesting questions I wrestle with quite a bit, though, is we've been focusing on individuals, individual crimes, individual amnesties, but for societies themselves at acknowledging atrocity, what ultimately, you know, is that motivation and how often this opens up political cleavages, political divisions, partisan divisions. I think, for example, the way Israel split over the issue of whether to accept the restitution from Germany as a result of genocide or the backlash in Australia for the acknowledgement of genocide against the uh, indigenous populations. How often do these issues create political tensions, partisan tensions within societies themselves? Sectarian divisions exist in all conflicts. And when I talk about historical dialogue, it's not about lovey-dovey people getting together in a kumbaya situation. Nationalists continue to emphasize the sectarian perspective. What I'm talking about historical dialogue is about civil society and people who want to look for reconciliation, pursue different avenues in order to bridge the narratives of the historical disagreement and atrocity. There are always multiple stories. And if you raise the issue of Israel and Germany and the split within Israel, in 1952, conflict within Israel was more violent than at any other point over this blood money. But as Germany maintained its commitment, it became the strongest supporter of Israel over the years. And despite the Holocaust, which is always the atrocity people compare themselves to in order to say that they have suffered most. The Jews in Israel never forgave the Germans. The Germans didn't ask for forgiveness. They asked for acknowledgement. So remembering and not forgiving is a powerful tool to bridge narratives. I've worked with the groups of Palestinians and Israelis, with Indian and Pakistani, with Irish, and sometimes there is a willingness to actually dig deeper into the atrocities, into the crimes, to bridge the narratives from both sides. Textbooks will be incredibly important, and a lot of good textbooks have been written where they show the two narratives, they show the facts, and people work together in order to do that. This is a slow process, 
But if I can bring a quick example for where it was done very well, that it's in Colombia. When the two sides, when the government and the FARC were meeting and discussing the peace agreement, the FARC demanded the truth commission. The government disagreed. They settled on a historical commission that worked for six months. And while there are so many methodological issues, it was in the midst of fighting that they agreed enough to legitimate the FARC as a political force and not as terrorists exclusively. So that's a good example. On the other hand, the Irish have been very difficult and refusing. They believe that each one has their own history. And we see in the last week the re-incitement between the loyalists and the nationalists. I must give one more example. Korea, Japan, and China fight over the slave, sexual slavery and the atrocities of Japan. These are among the largest economies in the world. They agree on diplomacy, they agree on policies, they agree on politics. They don't agree on national memory. So it's not a marginal topic. It's very critical. And if I had another hour, I would continue to talk, to rattle off examples. But this is really critical, and I wish that this movement and this organization would pay greater attention to it. And Mark Drumble, I know, again, looking at this tension between peace and justice, having, you know, individuals having to make these difficult decisions, but isn't one of the great challenges that if there isn't some form of justice or reconciliation or recognition, that the victims will seek their own justice? You know, I think of Martin Luther King's famous line that the arc of, of history tends towards justice, but one of the reasons for that is there are justice activists who will go out and assassinate political figures who they will accuse of atrocities. So if you don't address the justice questions, certainly the conflict can reemerge. How do we address those concerns? Well, sure. Vengeance is one of the longest standing human emotions. It's filled all of the ancient Greek myths, all folklores of all cultures from of yore and of now are full of vengeance. One of the functions of uh, civil societies is to channel that emotion into something that can be coordinated and constructive. So clearly uh, a need for justice exists, not only deontologically, because it may be the right thing to do, and not just preventatively, but also in an instrumental sense, so as to ensure some level of constructive externalization of, of sentiment and emotion. But I think I'd like to pick up a little bit more on the examples that Elazar and Jeremy provided, because to me, quite a number of them have interesting vignettes to them. So Jeremy spoke about East Timor and the amnesty, and, and that's actually quite interesting because in the application of amnesties in East Timor, generally the only people who still were in East Timor at the time of amnestying and, and sentencing were extremely low-level perpetrators foot soldiers, often illiterate, extremely impoverished, anyone with any means in crushing the plebiscite that led to East Timorese independence left and was safely ensconced in Indonesia. So this is interesting. The amnesty isn't just a concept, it's much more granular. Is it different to amnesty extremely low-level perpetrators? Same thing with the Lord's Resistance Army in Northern Uganda. Many of the perpetrators that uncontestedly got amnesties were very low-level perpetrators. 
So should we think of all this with more granularity? Amnesties for some, but perhaps impermissibly for others, not necessarily in the frame of what was done, but what their position of stat or status may have been. Elazar talked about Colombia, which is another extremely interesting example of uh, attempts at national reconciliation through a variety of mechanisms, including broad plebiscites by the public on a peace deal, which is another element of, of con controversy. But there's also a lot of creative thinking in the Colombian context. So for example, one of the most pressing issues that I had a chance to, to work on is the idea of the child soldier. What kind of justice for members either of mostly FARC, but also of, of paramilitaries who are under the age of 18, sort of enmeshed in this through a combination of, of ideology, desperation and, and narco-trafficking. What do you do? And Colombia actually developed an extremely interesting restorative justice model for those individuals that they could face some kind of penal process, but there would be no sentencing, no punishment whatsoever. So there'd be an expressive value, but it wouldn't be coercive or punitive in the end. That's another great example. My third one I'll pick up is also courtesy of Elazar, and that's Northern Ireland. From June of 2020 till the end of December 2020, I was on sabbatical leave and I spent it in Belfast with my family in Northern Ireland. And Elazar is absolutely right. There is a ongoing visuality of sectarianism throughout Northern Ireland, where you go from one village to another and you enter the loyalist villages and there's more Union Jacks than I ever saw in England. And, you know, this historical reaching back to the, the apprentice boys of Derry or Londonderry, depending on what side you're on, who closed the gates and, and kept the Jacobins out and, and the never surrender always in siege. This is very omnipresent in the visualities there. I was even surprised. And what we find, I think, in Ireland that's particularly vexing to me is actually greater levels of elite cooperation in welcoming in funds for putative transitional justice projects, almost as a source of funding and very little seepage of that down to ordinary rank and file society. And as Elazar points out, now the violence in Northern Ireland, a lot of it is intergenerational. Some of the latest loyalists that are engaging in violent public acts are kids. They're like 14, 15, 16 years old. So this conundrum arises once again. So let me conclude by just saying two things. First, you have to get into the richness of the particularities. And I think it's so important to welcome those bottom up, to recognize that a justice process in every different place might look quite different and entangle with and actually engage with very different factors. But then at the same time, yes, there has to be some overarching constellation of universals. Personally, for me, I would prefer to invest more in the particulars, in local voices, even if they're idiosyncratic, eclectic, different than necessarily in top-down universalism. But that's just my two cents. Jeremy Sarkin, I'll give you the last word on these questions about sort of particularism versus a broad approach that we can apply across cases and, you know, some, some cases themselves. Thank you. So I'll pick up on both what Elazar and Mark said. Just to pick up on Elazar's point about historical dialogue and reconciliation, 
I think we focus too little on non-repetition. And in some ways that really undermines all these particular questions because if we have justice now, but the conflict reoccurs as happens in so many places, what really beneficial was that particular justice? So we need to focus on how do we ensure that states where there was conflict and there were enduring human rights abuses don't relapse to where they were. And the studies show that between one third and half of all states that had conflict revert back within five years. So how do we do those things? South Africa, for example, its reconciliation levels are far below what it was 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when the apartheid system ended and a new constitution and all the institutions were really developed. So I think Elazar's point about what do we do in places where there are crises? How do we work in those places to deal with the magnitude of the problems? And how do we use dialogue and state building, nation building, apologies, and a whole range of strategies, because that's really fundamental. The point that Mark raised, and I'm, there's so many, but I'll just pick on one, and that's the local versus the international. And I'm not sure that I would put the emphasis so much on the local, because the local to some extent shows that in many places the local doesn't work. We need the international and the international processes to ensure that states do what they need to do. And that's the basis of the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court doesn't say we'll prosecute everything. They say we only prosecute what the state won't do. But we need to do that for also such as truth, reparations, and all the other tools. Who finds people? I mean, the only place really where there was a massive effort to find disappeared persons was in Bosnia at the end of 1995, run by the International Commission on Missing Persons. But in thousands of other places where hundreds of thousands of people disappear, there have been few people identified, uh, returned to their families, et cetera, et cetera. And we will only get to states living up to their obligations if there's an international system which says, if you don't do it, like with justice, we have these international mechanisms, we are going to intervene in those particular places. So we need, I think, the international system to support and to ensure that the domestic processes work. And really in relation to reparations, we've developed the international theory about reparations, but the practice of actually providing reparations, particularly for genocides and crimes against humanity, is so deficient as hardly worth mentioning in practice. The reality of people getting reparations, even getting back their property, getting back what they specifically lost, never mind their medical aid and all the other things where they were physically harmed. Almost hardly do we find that the overwhelming majority of people benefit in those particular ways. So we have a long way to go. And I would say we need both the local and the international. But often the, the local doesn't work. And that's why we need the international system to be pushing states to live up to their obligations. I want to thank our guests. We've been discussing the meanings of justice, of reconciliation, 
of acknowledgement, reparations, and restitutions for mass crimes, mass atrocities, genocides, crimes against humanity in the spirit of Genocide Awareness Month. Our guests have been Elazar Barkan, Professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University and Director of Columbia's Institute for the Study of Human Rights. He's the founder Director of the Institute for Historical Justice and Reconciliation at The Hague and the author of The Guilt of Nations, Restitution and Negotiating Historical Injustices and co-author of Taking Wrongs Seriously, Apologies and Reconciliation. Mark Drumble, Professor at Washington and Lee University's School of Law and Director of the University's Transnational Law Institute. He's the author of Reimagining Child Soldiers in International Law and Policy and Atrocity, uh, Punishment and International Law. And Jeremy Sarkin, Distinguished Visiting Professor of Law and member of CITES at Nova University Law School in Lisbon, Portugal. He is the author of The Global Impact and Legacy of Truth Commissions and Reparations for Colonial Genocides. Thank you very, very much. Thank you to our guests and to you for listening. The Scholars Circle team includes Doug Becker and Lillian Inc., contributing hosts, Ankine Arasian and Melissa Chiprin, managing producers, Sud Dongre, our webmaster, Tim Page and Mike Hurst, engineers and technical support. I'm Maria Armudian, and we'll see you next week.